From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While the season may be winding down, Billy Napier's squad seems to finally be hitting its stride. With the throttling of South Carolina on Senior Day, the latest sign the foundation poured by the new staff is beginning to harden. On today's show, we'll be joined by FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, to discuss the rattling performance against the Gamecocks, the continued connectedness of the defense, how turnover margin is morphed into a strength, getting up for an early kick at Vanderbilt, basketball's first defeat under Todd Golden, and how to spend the $2 billion Powerball jackpot in the PAT. Then, quarterback Anthony Richardson stops by for a chat about how he manages the rigors that come with college stardom, his homegrown gymnastic skills, and his budding music career. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. We reconvene our roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, and of course the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly. Uh, and guys, let's talk right out of the gates about football. You know, it's getting late in the year, but I think you, we can safely say for the first time this team has some real momentum, and that's because of what we've seen over the last six quarters, starting at AM and continuing pretty much throughout the entirety of the South Carolina game, which I think most people thought would be relatively close and was essentially a no contest by the end of the first quarter. Um, What did you guys see Saturday and and what trends are you seeing overall that have created this little little run that Florida's on? Well, Adam, you mentioned the six quarters, and that is in direct reference, obviously, to the Florida defense, which has obviously turned a lot of things around from earlier this season. So six consecutive quarters of uh, shutout football, again, that, that would qualify as not allowing an offensive touchdown. Uh, that would be the only qualifier in that situation. Uh, and this this pension for taking the football away, they put it into now their uh, cadre of things uh, to stop a team. You know, it, whether it's forcing a team to punt or uh, uh, a team failing to convert on fourth down, but now turnovers has become almost as much of a regular thing for the Gator defense as any of those other methods of getting the, the uh, Florida Gator offense back on the field. So uh, I think that you have to tip the cap in a lot of ways to the, the, the learning and adjustments that have been done here. Um, it's hard not to look at a couple of uh, personnel changes, uh, whether they be moving Chris McClellan inside or Britton Cox's dismissal that allows Antoine Powell Ryland now to become like, this pincer attack with Umami Ellen. I mean, those two guys seem to be getting into the backfield at the same time from two different directions. They're putting pressure on opposing quarterbacks and have taken some of the heat off of a secondary that's also played better. So uh, obviously now when we talk about 
the change in conversation, it all goes back to wins. If you don't win games, this conversation doesn't change. It's back-to-back wins now over not just SEC, but Power 5 opponents. And, and now you have a chance to, to be 500 with your SEC schedule, and you're still charting a course toward a possible 8-4 and four regular season and a clean sweep of November with two to go. So all those things are, are playing into it, and I think that this past Saturday we now have – two of the three phases um, of the football team putting together a full four, four quarters of play. I thought offensively, the Gators, I thought they played a complete game. And, of course, uh, special teams was a bit of a struggle. So they've yet to put together the full complete quarters there. So you're there. You're, you're, you're trending in the right direction. All the numbers look healthy, um, as opposed to maybe what we saw at different – phases of this season you know sean obviously i think hit on the high points there I, you know it's the defense those last six quarters some of those adjustments he spoke of it's taking care of the football you know the 50 straight possessions without a turnover until the last one against south carolina and you know they've also been taking away the ball 19 turnovers now in the season so those are things i think that you can pinpoint that's happening on the field but one thing that Billy Napier continues to talk about, and it's one of these, it's more of a gray area. It's about, you know, the identity of those intangibles. Uh, he calls it the character of this team. He, you know, I thought his best quote after the win against South Carolina, you know, they were, you know, people were continuing to ask him, well, what has changed? I mean, what can you pinpoint some something for us? He says, well, the football is better because the people are better. And what exactly does that mean? That just means that, you know, they're buying in. They're kind of – they're coming together as a team. Uh, they're doing all those things that, you know, we always hear coaches talk about. Again, it's not necessarily the the sexiest stuff to talk about sometimes, but you have to have it to have good teams. And I think it's taken time in the transition year for some of that to start showing up on the field. But I think we are seeing some of it. Uh, but again, you know, you have to go out and win games, and it only grows if you do win, obviously. You know, people buy in more. They start accepting the roles. They're seeing their value. So I think that's uh, – it's kind of one of those two-part things where, you know, Sean hit the on-the-field topics that are really important, and I think it goes into the locker room. is just equally important. And uh, now we'll see if they can uh, close out here the way they've set up for you know, if they can get these last two games, I mean, an eight and four season, as we've talked about on this podcast before, I think you've got to give a, a nice pat on the back to Billy Napier if they can get out of here eight and four. Well, the coach in me says, Scott, that we got to worry about being seven and four before right. we worry about being eight and four. Okay. So, well, yeah. I'm <laughs> uh, not a coach. To, to, the, to, to Scott's uh, point about uh, ball security. It starts with the quarterback, and, um, you know, I, I know that that string of, was it, Sean, 51 consecutive possessions, what it ended up being without a turnover, I believe, until Nate yeah, Mundine put the ball on the ground. Right. Um, you know, the, the the biggest thing is the quarterback play. Uh, I think Anthony Richardson had the last previous turnover, which I think was the second to last possession of the Missouri game, a really bad interception, if I recall, late in the game that didn't need to happen, that kind of made that – put some drama in that game that didn't need to happen. But <laughs> – to uh, the fact that he he is he's been much better throwing the ball away with his decision making. He still uh, you know he still has his accuracy issues, but um, he had some really good throws uh, the other day in that game, just like he did against Texas A and M. 
Uh, but more importantly, when the ball is getting in, in into a receiver, it's it, it's 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 someone who's wearing his jersey, and he, and and he's not fumbling the football. I mean, the, uh, it's it's the it's the it's the most important thing. Yes, any coach, you know what what's the most thing for a quarterback? Of course, it's it's win, it's winning games, but it's also ball security because you keep your team in the game when you do that. And also, let's talk about Florida playing to its identity as a running football team. That's something that all three of us have been talking about all season long. And uh, they, they announced that great stat um, midway through the fourth quarter where Florida had a, a 300-yard running backs in a game for the first time, I think it was since 1984. And then Anthony Richardson gets sacked. And in, in college, that goes against the, uh, the rushing yardage. So it became two 200-yard rushers and a quarterback who had 94 yards rushing and a touchdown. So um, that's what they do best. And we figure that thing out, and that's and when they go to Nashville this weekend against Vanderbilt. That's what they got to do up there too: play to their identity, take care of the football. And uh, back to my original point, I think they will be seven and four heading into that final game. You know, another thing, and it seems kind of obvious, but I think all year long people ask the question: Why isn't Anthony Richardson running the ball more? And if you look at Florida's success offensively the last couple of weeks, it's directly attributable to him being a bigger part of that ground game. So I think ultimately. You know, whether it's because of his health or something they unlocked, you know, offensively um, when they got their rotation down with their backs. Again, it takes time, but we're seeing now this is this is why Anthony Richardson is so dangerous as a quarterback running this type of offense, because he is just as much of a threat as either of your backs are. Yeah, and I I saw two things this past Saturday that um, show Anthony more as a runner, more as a running weapon now. Then earlier in the season when that's what we wanted to see or we thought there was the potential to be there. Two things. One, uh, on Anthony's end, I think he is managing the RPO better than he did uh, earlier in, in his starting career. I, I saw him make better decisions in that front on that front and be more comfortable uh, calling his own number when it's the proper call to make it an RPO. The other thing is on the coaching play calling platform – um, I saw some more quarterback power running, uh, quarterback power being the, the play call, if you will. I think we've seen more of that here of late. Uh, that's also enhanced Richardson's running numbers uh, and his number of carries in games, too. So those two things, I think, one is an evolution of a quarterback as a starter. Uh, one is perhaps um, being a better play caller, too, or getting to the card where you're more comfortable in calling that quarterback power type situation. Culture is such an important thing. And we talked about that um, last week when it was announced that Brenton Cox Jr. was no longer with the team. And you wonder sometimes, well, how does that, how does that actually tangibly change what you're seeing on the field? And, and I think if you look at look at what happened after Desmond Watson had that strip and, and nearly scored uh, while almost fumbling himself shortly thereafter, uh, the team just went wild. There, there's a, an energy and seemingly like a synergy within this defense that maybe wasn't there before. And it's not to pile on a Brenton Cox Jr., but sometimes we're all aware of in, in any sport at any level, there is such thing as addition by subtraction. And if you're just adding things up, the Florida defense right now is significantly better than they were, despite the fact that he was one of their most individually talented players. I just think that's interesting. It's something I think that we're seeing happening in, in real time right now. 
Yeah, I think the evidence, you know, is clear these last couple of games uh, with a lot of what you just said about the the energy, the the chemistry, teamwork, guys being in their place, doing their job. And um, again, there was a reason why Britton Cox Jr. was booted off the team. Uh, you just don't boot a guy off who's one of your top players uh, in the middle of the season if you don't think it's <laughs> truly warranted. So uh, I just think it says a lot. More so, really, the results. I mean, it, you, you know, the, the guys aren't going to come out and say, yeah, you know, it's good to have him gone and it, it helps everybody else. That's not the way it's going to work. But I think you just see it with your own eyes. They are playing together as a unit more. And guys who are getting those chances now, um, you know, whether, like we said earlier, uh, Antoine uh, Power Island Jr. I mean, he's he's suddenly a guy in the last two games. He's had a sack in each game. You know, we didn't mention him much early in the season. Uh, Prince Leuman Madeline is uh, really, I think, coming on. Uh, I think he's starting to show some signs of the player that a lot of people thought he could be before the year. Uh, so yeah, it, it's just a, it's a collective effort. You know, they 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 talk about it all the time. You, know, you got to have eleven guys doing your job, and I think they're getting that more consistently now. And uh, you look at those last six quarters, no offensive touchdowns. Um, that's huge. This past weekend was uh, was senior day for a lot of guys who it was their last chance to play in the swamp because they're out of eligibility. And then there's some other guys who are just moving on. And one of those is Trent Whittemore, who went through senior day, but is actually only a redshirt sophomore. Um, he And then he, of course, subsequently announced yesterday that he's entering the transfer portal. He's an interesting case because... It's hard to see exactly why he didn't really fit within this offense, but he was a big part of what Dan Mullen ran and just never seemed to click with what Billy Napier was doing. Just curious for, for your guys' thoughts on, on why why Whittemore was not a better part, was not a bigger part of, of this offense. Well, I think uh, they brought in a player in Ricky Pearsall who's similar to Trent Whittemore, but more talented. I mean, certainly more speed. I think he's a better route runner. Trent Whittemore is an excellent athlete. I mean, we've all followed him, you know, at Florida. He, I remember a couple of years ago in the, when they played basketball in the summer, you know, him and Anthony Richardson, Duncan, and team going wild. And, I mean, he he's a, a good player. He's He served his role here. But, you know, sometimes a new coach comes in at him, and, you know, a guy, his role that he had, it, it gets uh, replaced by someone else that they, they like more. And I think that's been the case with Pearsall. And I mean, he's, you know, you look at what Ricky's done. He's certainly been a good player for them this year. Had a touchdown catch the other night against South Carolina. And I just think Trent found himself as the odd man out. And, you know, you're going to see a couple more guys in the near future uh, do the same thing with that, with those announcements of going into the transfer portal, uh, with just their roles being kind of redefined, I guess, once Billy Napier took over. A couple of wrinkles here. Um, Scott's points about Ricky Pearsall are, extremely valid in this sense that uh, yes, Whittemore had a bigger role in Mullen's offense. Well, Mullen didn't have Ricky Pearsall. Let's, let's, yeah. let's start with that. And the other thing is, you know, you mentioned his classification. Yes. Officially redshirt sophomore, the COVID year has changed so many things and that includes the classification of a player. So if you're really being honest, Whittemore is well beyond the, the year of redshirt sophomore he and guys like Naquan Wright are actually going to have degrees in hand here shortly as well. So um, there also comes a time in a young person's life or even one in the middle age of my life that sometimes you've accomplished what you've accomplished, you can accomplish in a certain place, uh, whether it be 
sports and a degree, uh, all those things. And so I, I don't see anything unhealthy here about the Woodmore situation other than I think that emotionally if, if we were to talk to him here in the, you know, in the coming days, uh, there's, a, there's a heart tug, if you will, because of where he grew up, what he's put into this program, where he'll say that his academic degree is from. Uh, but in, a, in his case as well, there's also the wrinkle of a brother who's going on to play at Mississippi State. And if that's where Trent is going, um, you know, pretty cool chance. You've done, you've done what you can do at, at Florida, uh, and, and we all celebrated that this past Saturday. How many people get to say, hey, look, I still got another year of eligibility. How cool would it be to go spend a year with my brother playing college football? I, I also think that's, that's pretty cool too. So uh, I, I, I thank Trent for his service, as they say. Uh, and I'm really, I'm, I'm quite happy for him in a lot of ways. It is crazy what the transfer portal has done where it's, it's, you don't even, it's not really even surprising when guys transfer. It's just considered it's, it's cost of doing business, right? That's, that's how, uh, how college football and college basketball really are these days. So you just see it and you say, okay, yeah, well, you know, someone's going to come through the portal to replace them. That's kind of just how it goes in, in today's day and age. We talked about getting to seven and four, and uh, to do that, you've got to beat Vanderbilt on the road in a noon game. Seemingly every Vanderbilt game on the road is a noon game, but I, I guess you could look at this. It always comes down to, well, what's the mindset? And you always talk about Vanderbilt usually as a trap game, uh, and yet Vanderbilt is coming off their first win in an SEC game, and I think it's three years. It was 26 consecutive losses before they beat Kentucky on the road, who a month ago uh, was a possible college football playoff crasher. Uh, it's so weird the way things progress over the course of the year, but I, I don't think Vanderbilt will sneak up on the Gators as a result of that, um, but they also just proved they could beat a decent team on the road. So what do we make of this matchup? What are we looking for on Saturday? Man, it's going to be maniacal going in there to Dudley Field with the, with the response <laughs> from those from those yeah. fans. I, I can only I can only imagine what that's going to be like. <laughs> People come rolling down from Broad Street the night before for an 11 a.m. local game. That's right, it's 11 wow. a.m. local. I forgot about wow. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I look. I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking at just some past games. Uh, Alabama got 628 yards on them. Mississippi Mississippi got 589. Georgia got 579. Elon. Got five ninety two. Wake wow. up four fifty one. No, those, those are those are some really good teams. Obviously, Elon one kind of jumped off the page at me a little bit, but you know that the best thing that could happen was was them snapping that streak and beating Kentucky. I mean, I think I think we've come to terms now that that you know, as the as we've gotten further away from the Kentucky loss here in the swamp, that's that's going to be one that that's going to haunt this coaching staff probably relative to. Um, you know, Music City Bowl versus maybe Outback Bowl, which is a much better bowl game, of course. But uh, well, and and Chris, I mean, to to that effect, Florida has four losses. Three of them are to teams that are in the top six in the country, right? And Kentucky is that outlier, right? Right. And and again, that was going back to my point where Anthony Richardson was not protecting the football. We could remember some a couple egregious turnovers in that game that just should that just were inexcusable. And you know, he 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 would admit that if he were on this podcast with us right now. But you got you just you know you go in there you go into Nashville and you you do what you're supposed to do you do with the exact same mindset you had when you went to Texas A&M the exact same mindset that he had last week we said we're going to build on the momentum that we got in the second half in that game in College Station here in the swamp which they did and uh, then and only then do you start talking about Scott's point of going eight and four against Florida State but um, those are those are numbers that I just I just thought were 
pretty wild to think that and Kentucky went uh, against Vanderbilt and I think was held to 322 yards uh, 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 against the Vanderbilt defense which must have been must be improving some or Kentucky has kind of kind of uh, shown itself to be not the team that they were when they came to the swamp which is probably more uh, more along the likes of of reality I would think I think one noticeable thing about Vanderbilt's win over Kentucky is how physical they played uh, perhaps their most physical out output of the season. I mean, they they went to Kentucky and punched the Wildcats right in the mouth and did it for four quarters. Uh, they got some inspired play from a quarterback who was the starter for the Commodores at the start of the season and then kind of lost his way and lost his job, frankly, to a freshman. So uh, Mr. Wright uh, actually performed very well and showed his dual threat possibilities against Kentucky. So, again, I agree with Chris here. Let's remember this is – this is the Vanderbilt, and let's believe in the body of work, uh, not just one instance. But I think they're going to have a little bit of confidence on their side. If they play as physical against Florida as they did against Kentucky, it'll get your hands full real quick. Um, and um, I know the team doesn't want to talk about this, but 11 a.m. and temperatures in the 30s come Saturday is just a little piece of adversity that you've got to get yourself through. I think, though, that Florida is in a mode right now they see the eight, the eight win number on the wall that they can go grab. I think that they are, as Billy Napier said, uh, more of a brotherhood than they were a couple of months ago. And they are rallying around some guys who are finishing their career. Ventrell Miller is waving the flag back mm-hmm. and forth right now. And offensively, I think that Anthony Richardson, whether he wants to take the next big step as a starter in college football or he's trying to do everything he can to give one last good look to the NFL before this regular season ends. I think all those favor Florida in the sense, and you are then having that conversation about finish, finishing the year with a sweep of November in that Thanksgiving holiday week. Okay, let us turn our attention to basketball. Uh, and guys, we talked last week about the two games coming up for Florida, the Kennesaw State game and then FAU. Chris, I know you in particular said look out for FAU, led by Dusty May, uh, potential to give Florida a scare. And they did. They, they scared him into a loss, as a matter of fact. So uh, I'm, I'm curious for you guys, the, the takeaways from the, the last two games. I know we discussed the opener. Um, some inconsistency scoring the basketball, which again, that can happen when you're transitioning to a new staff and mixing in all the new pieces. But what are your thoughts on the way those two games played? out there was a coach here uh, a few years ago that won a couple national championships that would probably say after a game like that because he would say something along the lines of christopher the three-point line is the great equalizer in college basketball and that's exactly what happened monday night uh against florida atlantic they came in uh i mean they shot 35.5 percent from the two from two-point range uh, Florida, Florida Atlantic did, and 54 uh, percent from uh, from from three point range. Made wow. 13 of them in the first half. Uh, a couple guards, John L. Davis, and another one by the name of Michael Force, who didn't play in the first two games. A bio uh, chemical engineering major who had something flagged in his academic semester that kept him uh, ineligible for the first two games. Some kind of mistake, as it turned out. Well, he becomes eligible a couple hours before the game. And damn, if he doesn't come in in the first half and attempt three threes and make them all. Him and Davis were seven of seven themselves in that first half. And yet it was 35-35. And and yet Florida uh, came out in the second half and really had 
really took it to them energy wise and had a 10 point lead. And then it just reverted to everything it was in the, in the, in the first half with regards to uh, open three point shots. You know, they, 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 they had guard play that was just better than Florida's. Uh, Sean can weigh in on this, but I, I'm just saying that, that that's a good little team, man. And I say little team, they're in conference USA, but they, they had, they have four pretty talented guards and a seven, one big who transferred from Texas tech and, and conference USA that's a team that's going to give some teams trouble and we may very well see them in March, but it, it, it for the, in the here and the now, it looks like a bad loss. No, uh, no Florida team uh, that's not named Florida state or Miami had defeated the Gators uh, since Jacksonville beat Florida uh, December 20th, uh, 2010. That Florida team went on to win the sec and go to the elite eight. Uh, this team isn't as good as that team. Uh, that team had Chandler Parsons and a bunch of good guys, Vernon, uh, Vernon Macklin and, and some dudes on that squad. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the box score, uh, 25 shots by Colin Castleton is too many. It's got to be balanced out a little more. That's the most shots taken by a Florida basketball player since 2004. Wow. It's just, it's just, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's just too many. Now he's been terrific, man. Uh, but he was only 11 to 25 with all those shots. He's a six eleven big trying to play in the post. He made his first three of his career. Uh, good for him, but we're going to need some more balance from, the power forward spot, CJ CJ Felder went scoreless uh, in in almost fourteen minutes. Um, uh, Alex Fudge came in, only scored four points. So there's some feeling out going on right here. But there's some defensive issues in terms of ball screens, transition wise, that uh, Florida is going to have to get right. Now they go to Florida State this weekend. Florida State lost a horrible game against Troy, which came after losing a horrible game to UCF, which came after opening the season with a horrible loss to Stetson. So they're going to have a mad on, but at the same time, they only got eight guys playing right now because of a variety of injuries and uh, one very critical suspension. So uh, one of those teams is going to get itself right uh, Friday night in Tallahassee. But um, Florida, Florida needs to be a little bit more on edge for the first road game under uh, and more on point defensively in the first road game under Todd Golden. I will, uh, I will say that my colleague here has covered most all the points. Uh, I think that one thing, if there's any benefit from losing uh, on Monday, is that Todd Golden has their full attention in a unique way now. Um, I totally agree with Chris uh, as far as the offensive end goes. Uh, Colin Castleton is not going to get those kind of shots. That number, that volume in conference games coming up, five bench points is not going to be a good thing. Uh, you're going to wear your guys out. I think that some of the guys were out of gas in a lot of ways, against Florida Atlantic the other night. The trouble with the threes is this. And look, some teams get hot. Coach Donovan's right. It's a great equalizer. But the two ways that Florida Atlantic scores their threes, um, the Gators were fully warned about how exactly that would play out. They want to pitch it ahead in transition and hit quick trigger threes in transition. They also want to come over a screen and shoot that. If you don't lock and trail your man and go over that screen and go under the screen, it gives the big a chance to to sink, and now the shooter has all the room they want. And that's exactly what Florida Atlantic did, despite the very clear instructions to the Gators. So they did not execute a game plan well defensively in trying to thwart that three-point attack by Florida Atlantic. Uh, It is interesting in that both Florida Atlantic and Kennesaw State, the team you beat by 10, I thought really, really came after Florida. The intensity level, and no surprise for upstart teams trying to come into somebody's big gym and pull off an upset, uh, they went right after the Gators. One night, the Gators, I think, responded just fine. 
maybe the next time out they didn't handle it so well. You know, lesson learned there, I guess, too. Uh, Chris is also right about Florida State. Nice test. It's a very unique first road game and that it's such a big rival. Um, I kind of feel for the Seminoles, but really I don't. But, <laughs> you know, against, against Troy to start the week, Chris mentioned eight players available. Only seven of those guys are scholarship players. It's, it's unimaginable after what Leonard Hamilton and that squad went through last year that this is the way they're starting the season now. <laughs> so it could make them awfully dangerous or – This is a vulnerable Florida State team. You're getting them at the right time here, uh, which has not been the Gators' case in a lot of occasions against the Seminoles over the years. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping for a real big bounce-back game uh, on Friday on the road before heading off to Portland Thanksgiving week where the competition will be extremely ratcheted up uh, for that big, long, extended road trip. Five FSU players, just to throw that, played at least 29 minutes. Four played more than 33 minutes in that game wow. uh, against wow. against Troy. That's just – I mean, uh, uh, so one thing the Gators do know, they're, they're not going to play a team. I think right now FSU is playing at a 250th in pace of play, according to Ken Palm. So it's not going to be an up-and-down uh, kind of affair because they just, they just don't have the manpower to do it. So – that may be good for the Gators, but uh, I'm, we all know how Leonard Hamilton teams play, how tough they are, how physical they are. Uh, down in man, it's hard to be that physical, but um, that is their blueprint, and that's how they've beaten Florida the seven out of last eight. Of course, Florida broke that string last year, seven straight victories for FSU. So we'll see if Florida can win its first road game in Tallahassee since 2012. Let us now wrap up with our PAT, and we're going to go back to the the fun one uh, about the Powerball jackpot that I was going to do last week before the food poisoning inspired my my uh, my trade off. I will say I I feel great now. I have not had any issues this week. Uh, thank you to those who reached out and asked. But I want to talk Powerball. Somebody won two billion dollars, which is hard to even wrap your head around that that many people play the lottery in the first place. But apparently they do. So I started thinking, well, what would I even do with $2 billion? And what I would probably do is different from what you guys would do, because a uh, spoiler, you guys are all older than I am. You're at different stages of your life. But alas, it's different for everybody, right? So I want to know if you had won that $2 billion, and maybe you did, and you just pretended that you lived in California to throw people off the scent. But if it were you, what, were, what would be three things you would do if you woke up tomorrow and you won $2 billion? I would be on this podcast that, exactly you that. <laughs> oh, you you, you uh, abs- i couldn't wait to answer the question and you beat me to it the, 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 cl- the clue was the, the clue was if i was if i was throwing anybody off the set i would not be on this show right now <laughs> oh man that's the easiest one that was god oh. Oh, that was sweet you're right i should have i should have anticipated that what would I do with $2 billion? I haven't given that much thought since I don't expect to have $2 billion. But if I did, I'd probably do like a lot of people would. I would certainly help out. I First and foremost, it would just be family, whatever loose sins I could tie up there for people I'm close to. Uh, I'm not necessarily a materialistic person. I'm not a big toy guy. But, you know, I would, uh, I'm sure I would probably just build a comfortable house uh, somewhere, the, maybe a dream house. That would probably be the second thing I would do. The third thing I'd do, probably, I mean, if I was single, I'd buy a couple of Russian brides without question. <laughs> but I'm married, so, you know, I don't know, maybe 
maybe just buy a couple of Kardashians and shut the <laughs> door on their company because I get tired <laughs> of hearing them. So I really don't have a great. Well, don't, the Kardashian, don't the Kardashians have a billion dollars? They already. Yeah, they, they could all, probably buy. They, they all could have probably a buy dollars, me back yeah. and shut me. But <laughs> yeah. you know, so then I don't seriously. So I think I would, you know, help family, probably build a dream house, and I'm sure I would do something, Adam. But I don't think I'd do anything. I'd probably just travel the world, to be honest with you. I mean, I'd still want to work and write some, but I. That's I do what I was going to ask. Is that's 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 what I hinted at when I said you guys are at different stages of your life. But like, would you keep working? Because if, if I want all this money, like, what am I going to do? Not like, what would I? What would I do? That yeah. would you know? Well, I, me? I certainly would keep working. I mean, it'd be on my own terms, and maybe yeah. even start some kind of company and employ people. But I, I would certainly do it from remote places around the world at my at my uh on my schedule i think that i would probably decide that i don't have to cut my own grass or run a weed eater anymore that might be first um i i think at this stage of my life i would like to have a a home or some place to go in my favorite spots uh in different climates and maybe that's internationally too uh, and kind of much like scott i think that i would try to come up with some kind of a list uh Okay. Uh, and what do you still owe on your house? Not anymore. Take care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then beyond that, I think there's two things that I would probably endeavor. Um, a, I don't know that I would stop working, but I might own the team that I'm working for. <laughs> so yeah. I, I might buy into some kind of a professional sports franchise, perhaps. Uh, and then also, uh, how wonderful would it be to, to take some of that money and, and produce something like you know, the Ronald McDonald House, which we find now all over the country that impacts families uh, that, that have children battling cancer or some way to make a difference in this world, obviously. Um, and again, maybe that's my stage in life. And I would want to leave more of a lasting impact with that. And when you're talking about that kind of money and, and no slight to any of the uh, $54 million winners out there, across, you know, uh, whatever. But when we're talking about B, billion dollar there, there is, there is a way to to certainly make a hell of an impact. So, um, yes, I would be comfortable. Yes, I, I would have a few cool things like real estate and key spots. Uh, I would be employing myself in the industry that I love, but leaving an impact obviously would be something that would be very important to me. To that effect, Sean. Yes, Jeff. Another B. Jeff Bezos uh, announced he's going to eventually give away all of his. I think it was 192 billion, uh, and he's starting with giving Dolly Parton a hundred million dollars to do whatever she wants with uh, in terms of her favorite charities. So that's that's a that's a lot of giving power when you're talking about the hundred billion number. Uh, you know, I'm on. I'm on. We would all say we take care of of things important to our family or whatever. Um, my wife would say right away, buy me a home uh, near our daughter. Um, in at the University of Arkansas, somewhere over there, probably in the, a nice place in the Ozarks. Scott said he would build a nice home. I'm not sure I'd even wait around to build. I just go buy something that's ready for, to just move right in, whether it's in the Swiss Alps or in Vail or or wherever wherever, wherever the hell. I mean, there's, I mean, it's just that 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 kind of money. All I know is if it happened today, like on Friday, Scott would be you know calling me saying. Where's Chris's pregame stuff for the uh, Florida, Florida State basketball game? I know that. So I mean, sitting around still working. Uh, I hate to say it, if Scott Strickland, you're listening, I, 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 I don't think that would happen. I'm not sure Scott 
if he won the $2 billion lottery, I'm not sure he'd be going to Gator Booster meetings and stuff like that still. He'd be probably spending a lot of money visiting his daughters uh, in Mississippi as well. But um, it, it's, you know, last week I thought this was an interesting question. It's really not that interesting now that we have to talk about it because it's never going to freaking happen. So it's kind of, <laughs> kind of depressing now, now that you brought it up. You never know. But, you never know. Well, no one won the billion dollars, uh, but we did get to spend this time together today, and you can't really put a price tag on that, can you? Um, Chris probably could, so I'll move on quickly to remind everybody to check out all of these guys' stuff. Of course, Scott and Chris read what they're writing over on FloridaGators.com. Listen to Sean's calls of the upcoming games this week, and there's a bunch of them happening. Uh, we're going to keep him well-rested and rolling along, and we will talk about everything that went down next week. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. Go Gators. Few athletes in the nation faced the expectations Anthony Richardson did entering this season, and as is the case with most young players, growing pains have been part of his journey. Now, at the same time the team is gaining steam, so too is the signal caller, running Florida's powerful ground game as a constant threat to keep the ball and generate chunk plays. So much of the conversation surrounding Richardson has swirled around his future, but to truly get to know the real AR, you have to start with the past. So I'm originally from Miami, so majority of my family is in Miami. But we moved here when I was 10, and Gainesville is pretty much, you know, majority of, of what I know. And I came here with my mom, my little brother. It's way different from Miami, and I really enjoy Gainesville because it's a lot more laid back and chill, and I, I like that type of environment. But other than that, you know, I just love Gainesville. How much Miami do you still have in you, do you think, or is it all gone at, at this point? I feel like I still got it in me, you know. Okay. Um, growing up there half of my life and playing football down there, I feel like it kind of bred me a little bit and, and kind of molded me a little bit. But I feel like games were just you know, completely took over after a while. So how did how did you start playing football? When did that become a, a focus for you? My mom said the first toy I ever fought over was a, a Nerf football. And I was around like two or three years old. And I started playing football around like three or four, and you know, I just took off from there. And my uncle who passed, he you know he used to coach and he used to play himself, and he pretty much gave me the keys and taught me how to play football. Were you immediately drawn to to the quarterback position, or did that happen later on after you started playing? Uh, I, I've always played quarterback, but I've also played other positions as well. Um, but the main reason I played quarterback because you know. As a young kid, I had a, a pretty strong arm for my age. So they always put me back there to throw the ball deep so somebody could just run it there and get it. I feel like a lot of the guys I talked to in the early years, they're playing they're playing like three or four different positions. Were you also yeah. playing on, on the defensive side of the ball? Were you moving? Did, did you ever have a playoff? <laughs> nah, pretty much. I was pretty much always on the field. Um, growing up in Miami, I played uh, quarterback, fullback, linebacker, and safety. And then coming here, I played quarterback and safety in middle school. That's when I pretty much took over and played quarterback, D-line, linebacker, and safety. Wow. that's a, yeah. you, you were in a lot of meetings, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, so growing up on Miami, were you uh, were you a Miami fan? Were you a Gator fan? What, what were your, your early allegiances? Honestly, I used to play NCAA 14 a lot, mm-hmm. and – I used to love Boise State's football field 
and Oregon's uniform. So those are pretty much my two schools because of their colors. But other than that, I didn't necessarily have a team that I, I like or love. I just love football. Did you ever play with Oregon on Boise State's field? And did that cause you any permanent eye damage from doing that? I guess it did because I'm wearing glasses now. <laughs> but I definitely did that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you were, a, you were a pretty high-level basketball player too coming up. Um, how, how much did you think about sticking with basketball or was football always going to be your, your ultimate path? You know, football was always going to be my, you know, my, my sport because that's my first love. That's what I fell in love with. Uh, when I moved here, that's when I started playing basketball. And I didn't realize you know, that I was actually pretty decent in basketball until a lot of people were telling me, like, bro, you're actually pretty good. I'm like, yeah, it's fun. Though. I just like to dunk. That's it. But, um, <laughs> You know, football is always my first love, and that's why I, I know I'm going to stick with it. So we've also seen you – we've seen do a lot of, of gymnastics moves uh, over the, the last couple of years. Did you have any formal training in that, or you just goofing off one day and realized you could do a backflip? See, the crazy thing about it, I wanted to do gymnastics growing up, but I didn't feel like I could do it because I was you know, I was a, a big person <laughs> from my age. So <laughs> Maybe too big for it. Yeah, my mom <laughs> didn't put me in it. And my little brother was in it for a few months, and I was a little jealous. So I'm like, okay, let me just learn how to do some flips and stuff. So I just went outside and started doing stuff, watching YouTube and flipping. That's just that that simple? I guess so. <laughs> did you have any accents? I feel like, I mean, you know, usually when they learn how to do stuff, they're in like a foam pit. If I just did that outside, I feel like I'd break my neck. Well, growing up, a young boy, you know, um, falling and, and getting scrapes and stuff isn't always... <laughs> first thing in your mind so i've definitely fell on my head a couple of times okay but it's taught me just to jump higher and, and flip better <laughs> at some point if i could do that i would too um so all right so we've established you were not going to play basketball you're not going to be a gymnast you were going to focus on football uh what do you remember about the recruiting process and and how that got started how early were you looking and and you know what what were your thoughts about it the recruiting process was kind of different for me because I didn't necessarily have a school I wanted to go to. You know, I just wanted to go to college regardless. But I didn't, I didn't want my mom to pay for my educational bills and anything like that because, you know, growing up, life was kind of hard for us a little bit. But, you know, I just wanted to go to college. And luckily, I got blessed to choose from some top universities. And I eventually chose UF. So, yeah, I was going to ask you, was UF more attractive because it was in Gainesville or were your initial thoughts, I want to get away from home? Because some people have, some people want to get away from home for college. Others are comfortable staying right where they are. What was that process like for you? Honestly, I didn't have any thoughts of whether I wanted to stay or, or leave. And I just wanted to go to college for free and, and play football and just enjoy life. But, you know, actually going through the recruitment process and thinking about all the factors that tie into you know, picking a school and playing for a school. Uh, UF was the best fit, and, you know, it felt even more great, you know, just being from here and my family's here, so why not decide to stay here? Mm -hmm. So when you came into the program, who really took you under their wing? Who showed you the ropes? Uh, Emory, you know, my official visit, he was my my guy uh, to, you know, show me around. When I got here, he, you know, he was like a big brother to me. You know, I still talk to him to this day, even though he's not here. You know, I've learned a lot from him and I appreciate him. And 
I'm glad uh, to, you know, play with him and be part of his legacy. Hmm. I think so many people were, were really, they, they love to see the relationship that you guys had, especially last year. Externally, there's this quarterback controversy, but you guys were constantly supportive of each other. What was that like, though? Because, again, there, there's only one spot, right? Only one guy can play that position. How did you maintain that relationship while also recognizing the competition and, and the fact that one of you is probably going to have to go somewhere else? You know, that's that's just having a relationship with somebody. You know, um, like I said, coming in, he was like a big brother to me. And we both understood what comes with this position. We both understood where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And that we both know the, the main goal and the end goal. So that was definitely a part of us recognizing what we had to do to you know keep it professional, but also support each other because things could have got out of hand. We could have been you know having problems with each other, but we didn't let any of that happen because we were brothers at first. So being in Gainesville, being at UF, I'm curious how that's changed maybe your perspective on the city. Uh, what what is being on campus opened your eyes up to in Gainesville that you probably wouldn't have even thought about when you were just at Eastside? Uh, it's definitely made me realize that Gator sports is definitely a big deal in Gainesville. Playing football here, you, know, you definitely get a lot of attention. Uh, I got some recognition and attention in high school, but not nearly as much as I do now. And it can definitely mess with your head and, and change you. But, you know, just growing up here and actually understanding the games, building the people that's here and the support that I get, I've always just stayed the same. Hmm. So you were obviously recruited by Coach Mullen and his staff, and then this big change happens, right? What was the most challenging part of that transition process, and what did they do to help you buy in with, when the new staff came in? The most challenging part was just getting acclimated to everything. You know, um, new staff, new verbiage. Uh, new playbook, new play call, just a lot of new stuff going around. So uh, it was definitely kind of hard to adjust to that. But after a while, actually getting to know the staff and the people that's here to help us, it made things a lot easier for us. In what ways do you feel like you've grown the most on the field working with Coach Napier? No, just my decision making. You know, uh, he has a a plan in the the toolbook for us to use on the field that allows us to be decisive when making decisions. And I feel like that was something I definitely needed to improve on. I feel like I've improved on that a lot this year. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like quarterbacks are already so high profile. There's probably a lot of names that pop up when you think about people you look up to. Um, but if you look over the years, whether it was earlier when you were growing up or even today, who are some of the QBs that, that you watch and, and you want to to model their game? Uh, growing up, a lot of people know this. But my favorite quarterback was Cam Newton. You know, um, just watching what he did at Auburn, and then going to the Panthers. I wanted to be like him. You know, I used to rock number two because of him. Um, it, it felt good to, you know, just try to do the same things he did on the field. But as I matured and got older, um, I started watching uh, Lamar a little bit, uh, even Josh Allen, you know, because those guys, that they're similar in a lot of ways, but they're also different. Mm-hmm. In terms of guys uh, that, that people probably see you as like, when you come in with number 15, a lot of people, they, they see Tebow, right? right. Um, what, what went into the decision to choose that number? Was it, was it consciously because you wanted to say, I'm arriving, this is what I want to do? Or was it just a number that, that you liked? Uh, I honestly did it for NIL purposes. You know, uh, I knew that it was going to be an opportunity for me to make some money and, and help my family. But uh, eventually I realized, like, whoa, 
I actually have number 15 and you know, I have to live up to you know, Tebow's standard because he was a great quarterback, even a great person. So uh, just knowing that I have that number, it pushes me every day to you know, just be the best I can be overall. You mentioned the NIL stuff. It's interesting because that's a whole new part of being a college athlete that no one else has had to deal with before. Um, so I guess there's, there's not really a lot of guys you could look to for support who've even done this at this level. How have you sort of managed all of that happening around you uh, while staying focused on obviously the, the things on the field and in the classroom? You know, uh, that's just understanding what the goal is. You know, understand what you want to do, what you want to accomplish, you know, and just keeping a tunnel vision because there's a lot of things <laughs> that go into being a collegiate athlete. But, you know, just keeping the main focus and keeping the main thing the main thing uh, helps out a lot. We were talking about guys you looked up to. I, I imagine that uh, Eli and Peyton are probably on that list as well. And I know over the summer you got to go to the, the Manning Passing Academy. Can you tell us about that experience and what was that like? What did you do while you were there uh, that, that stayed with you? Honestly, going to that camp and, and being around those guys is definitely a blessing. You know, I'm more than thankful for the opportunity that they gave me. Um, just being around all those kids, you know, that just brought joy and excitement to me because I love you know, having an impact on the youth, you know, just teaching them things and also learning from them. So that was also a blessing. Um, being around the other collegiate quarterbacks, that was also another, you know, starstruck opportunity for me because, like, you, you get to see those guys on TV and social media, but it's, sometimes you don't necessarily understand who they are until you get to meet them. And all those dudes are, are great dudes, and I have fun. And learning from Eli and Peyton, it was different because you're standing in the same room talking to them like it's just regular conversation. You're like, wow, these are NFL legends and they're helping me get better as a quarterback. So overall, it's just a great opportunity for me. Are there any particular things that, that they taught you or you learned from them that you remember now and, and factor into to your growth? Yes, uh, I will never forget. Uh, we had a meeting and they were just talking about us, you know, just growing as QBs and as people. And they allowed us to ask questions. And I can't remember exactly what the question was, but Peyton talked about the details about everything. You're always going to be able to, you know, throw a certain route or read a certain coverage. But knowing the details and, and certain movements and parts to understand what's going on makes it a lot easier. So that was the main thing I learned was the details really matter. Hmm. Uh, you know, you talked about all the things you have to focus on, whether it's, whether it's in the classroom, on the field, some of your deals you have. When you get away from all that, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, if you had an afternoon to yourself, what would you do? Honestly, it depends on what, I, what I've done the week before. <laughs> I like to hang out with my friends a lot. Um, those are my guys who've been rocking together since sixth grade, play AAU basketball together. Hmm. Um, I like to go hang out with my family, just chill with them, watch football, and just enjoy life and even if i have a little bit of free time i try to get in the studio a little bit and just express myself and rap a little bit did, i i didn't know that was something you did is that uh how how far along is your your rap career uh i started doing that this year uh oh wow okay. my, yeah one of my guys he started like two or three years ago and then another one started like a year or two ago and i was just joking around one day i was like let me get on the song and they're like okay and i did it and i realized that that was my form of expressing myself and, and into the world. And, you know, it feels good every time I do it. 
what what kind of stuff are you writing about? Like, is it is it fun stuff? Is it more personal? Uh, it's a little bit of everything, you know. Sometimes I try to make songs that you know a lot of people can relate to, and sometimes I just make songs that a lot of people can just dance and just vibe to. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to put you on the spot. Can, can you give us maybe like one verse here? Maybe something just that that you're workshopping. Uh, let me see what I got. Um, <laughs> I was trying to start writing a song last night actually, but I got too tired and just fell asleep. But um, I just recently released a couple of songs. But one of my um, favorite songs that I wrote is called Pain. Okay. You know, and you know, a lot of people go through stuff, so a lot of people can relate to that song. The one line says, uh, I wish I had my phone. <laughs> check, check my notes out. We'll let it Yeah. Okay. I said, yeah, this pain is getting the best of me. I'm trying to cook it up, but I don't even have the recipe. That's one of my favorite songs. There's some more into it. Is that is that verse or is that chorus? Like, what is that? What are we, are we building up there? Yeah, that's just the the verse. Like that's just the verse. Okay. Yeah, as soon as it starts. <laughs> I'm I'm subscribed. I'm subscribed. <laughs> um, couple of final things for you. Obviously, the last two weeks, it seems like the team has really hit its stride. We've seen the results, and I think obviously Gary Nation's taking notice. What do you think has changed in the last couple of weeks that's led to this success? I feel like we're just playing for each other now. You know, and just enjoying football, not taking any opportunities for granted. You know, we've had a lot of guys step up in the leadership role, and a lot of guys understand that this means a lot to a lot of different people on the team. So we're actually just taking it into account and just playing for each other and just loving each other and just having fun. Final question for you. Uh, Desmond Watson set the swamp on fire this past weekend. He almost scored on that fumble. Um where did that moment rank in the the best moments of the season uh, for the team, in your opinion? You know, that one was definitely up there. I, w- I would definitely say either top three or top five because not even just because of what he did, but all the smiles that I seen on the sideline, his smile was so big, you know. It actually seemed like we were enjoying football for the first time. And, you know, that's definitely one of the top moments for me because – like just seeing all those guys excited and having fun, you know, it just felt good. Anthony, thank you so much again for your time. Wish you a lot of luck the rest of the year. And Gator Nation is rooting for you. Appreciate you. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.